the wise. Who knows the explanation of things? A person's wisdom brightens their face and changes its hard appearance. Obey the king's command, I say, because you took an oath before God. Do not be in a hurry to leave the king's presence. Do not stand up for a bad cause, for he will do whatever he pleases. Since a king's word is supreme, who can say to him, what are you doing? Whoever obeys his command will come to no harm, and the wise heart will know the proper time and procedure. For there is a proper time and procedure for every matter, though a person may be weighed down by misery. Since no one knows the future, who can tell someone what is to come? As no one has power over the wind to contain it, so no one has power over the time of their death. And no one is discharged in time of war, so wickedness will not release those who practice it. All this I saw as I applied my mind to everything done under the sun. There is a time when, the man, when a man lords it over others to his own hurt. Then, too, I saw the wicked buried. Those who used to come and go from the holy place and receive praise in the city where they did this, this, too, is meaningless. When the sentence for a crime is not quickly carried out, people's hearts are filled with schemes to do wrong. Although a wicked person commits, a hundred crimes may live a long time. I know that it will go better with those who fear Lord, fear God, who are reverent before him. Yet because the wicked do not fear God, it will not go well with them, and their days will not lengthen like the shadow. There is something else meaningless that occurs on earth. The righteousness who get what the wicked deserve, and the wicked who get what the righteous deserve. This too, I say, is meaningless. So I commend the enjoyment of life, because there is nothing better for a person under the sun than to eat and drink and be glad. Then joy will accompany them in their toil all the days of the life God has given them under the sun. When I applied my mind to know wisdom and to observe the labor that is done on earth, people getting no sleep day or night, then I saw all that God has done. No one can comprehend what goes on under the sun. Despite all their efforts to search it out, no one can discover their meaning. Even if the wise claim they know, they cannot really comprehend it. May God bless the reading of this word. I don't know how many of you all have read Steve Jobs' biography. Raise your hand if you've read Steve Jobs' biography. Okay. One, two. Let me see. Oh my. Three. Okay. Only three of you. Um, do you guys even know who Steve Jobs is? <clears throat> I know you know who Tom Brady is, but I'm asking about Steve Jobs. Um, Steve Jobs <clears throat> had an amazing impact to changing our world into the I world, the iPod, the I this, the I that, the I everything, the, and certainly the iPhone. And one of the things that I got from reading his biography, his authorized biography, no less, was the fact that the people who lived and worked around Steve Jobs called it a reality distortion field. There was the world according to Steve Jobs, and then there was reality. And so the people who had to listen to Steve Jobs' vision then had to deal with the reality of how can we even possibly try and move things around to get it where this man says it needs to go so that he doesn't have a temper tantrum on us. Very interesting biography. I commend it to you. It's full of wisdom. <clears throat> but as we come to Ecclesiastes 8 and see the world as it is, 
What Ecclesiastes does as a whole as a book, and certainly what this chapter does, is it brings principles to our lives that allow us to get out of the reality distortion field and to get into a reality reorientation. To understand the world as it really is, is to know how to live in it and to be able to deal with it. And that's the whole purpose of Ecclesiastes. Seems like a depressing book, I'll tell you why. It's because life is depressing. This is a life of sin, a life of death, a life of injustice, a life of difficulty. And Ecclesiastes gets that right in our face, but it does it in such a way that actually if you grasp the principles, if you follow the mindset and the thinking, rather than it lead you into a path of despair and depression, it will actually lead you into faith, into fearing the living God. So what we're going to do today is we're going to choose nine principles um, and I'm going to move quickly through them. Don't worry. I know some of you are looking at your watch. You're looking at my sermon outline in the bulletin. And you're going, oh, no, we're going to be here way past lunchtime. No, um, you, you will get released in time to see the Super Bowl. Maybe not um, uh, much before then, but I promise I will release you on time for, for lunch. But what we're going to do is we're going to grab nine principles from the scriptures to help us deal with the world as it is according to God. Not Steve Jobs. And the first principle that we see as we look at verse one, who is like the wise? Who knows the explanation of things? A person's wisdom brightens their face and changes its hard appearance. We see that being in the know brings joy to your heart. Now, if you don't know how to do something, you often feel like a loser. Um, I felt like a loser most of my life. I'm not I'm not in the know when it comes to anything connected to throwing a ball. Um, I'm not in the know. With anything that's connected to mechanical things. In fact, I'd need a night class to know how to use a hammer. Um, and that's why I'm very thankful I married Evie. Because she came from uh, a family where her dad was a very good engineer at Sperry, New Holland. And Evie knows how to do everything. So, uh, let me show you what happened. Um, do, do we have some pictures up there? Um, some pictures of some creatures. I want you to see the creature first and then I'll tell you um, my story. But... This is, no, that's Princess Leia, actually. Um, and we had two in Hawaii during our time there. And can we see the other one? Uh, let's see the other picture. We do have another picture, don't we? Please say yes. Oh, nope, that's not the one. <laughs> Wait to the end of my sermon for that, people. Do we have two lizards or one? If we have only one lizard, okay, I'll tell you the story. Um, that was a Jackson chameleon, and they look like dinosaurs. And Princess Leia looks like a stegosaurus. She has little, you know, um, little plates on her back. And she used to sit on my shoulder, God bless her heart, when I'd type my papers at the University of Hawaii. And then her husband was King Kamehameha. And her husband looks like a triceratops and has three horns sticking out of his head. It's the coolest thing on the planet. I strongly recommend um, Jackson chameleons. But when King Kamehameha found Princess Leia to be his wife, then they created um, a very interesting situation where we needed to build a nursery for the Jackson chameleons because otherwise uh, they'll eat their babies after they're born. And I didn't want to have any of that. But you know me, I need a night class to know how to use a hammer. But thank God my wife knew what to do. She goes to the hardware store, buys the screens, buy, um, bought everything, bought the wood, comes out, lays out the plan while I sit there looking going, wow, wow, that's really great. She was in the know and it brought gladness to her heart, but I was not in the know and it was very um, 
disturbing. Um, I'm not in the know on things, on most things technical, which is why I'm glad to be in a congregation with so many of you smart people. So one of the things I don't know how to do is I don't know how to do Snapchat. Um, does anybody have a cell phone with him today that has Snapchat on it? Anybody have Snapchat? Raise your hand if you have Snapchat. Can you come up here? Do you have your cell phone? Uh, please. Do you have it with you? Is it on? Okay, great. Come on up. Uh, now, I am an old dog, but you can teach me new tricks. Now, can you teach me very quickly? Show me your Snapchat. Okay. <laughs> and can you explain to everyone? We have some other old dogs, I'm sure, as well. Okay, it's like a picture taking app. You, like, send pictures to each other. Okay, so can you take a picture of me and then send it to somebody? Sure. Okay, try it. Here we go. Do you want to use a filter? Oh, yeah, use a filter. Okay. That's even getting better. Can you zoom out of this? Okay. Okay, awesome. Tilt your head. Okay. You have to open your mouth. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Okay, and who are you sending it to? I'm going to send it to Lindsay. Okay, Lindsay. Lindsay, do you have your phone on? Yes, she does. Okay, can you show me exactly, <laughs> can you show me exactly what you did? I just, you take a picture. Okay. Okay. And then you, like, pick who you want to send it to. Okay. So you have, like, your best friends list. And that's all on Snapchat. Yeah, which is, like, the people you Snapchat the most. Okay. And then, or you can Snapchat whoever's on your list. Okay. And there are, like, streaks. So you have to, like, Snapchat them at least once a day. To keep oh. The going. Oh, sweet. Okay. Yeah. Now, do you see the smile on her face? <laughs> Why? It's because being in the know brings joy to your heart. Now, I'll get there. Thank you so much. Yeah. Um <clears throat> When we come to the second principle, and you'll see this in verses two through six, um, it's a little bit more somber. Uh, the second principle that we see comes from verses two through six, and it's this. Respecting authority brings less trouble to your life. Listen to the writer to Ecclesiastes. Obey the king's commands, I say, because you took an oath before God. Do not be in a hurry to leave the king's presence. Do not stand up for a bad cause, for he will do whatever he pleases. Since a king's word is supreme, who can say to him, what are you doing? Whoever obeys his command will come to no harm and the wise heart will know the proper time and procedure. There's something about this verse that we can learn from, but there's also something that disturbs us because this is written in a time where they have kings. We don't have kings in too many places. There are a few countries that still have their kings, but most countries have representative governments or they have governments where not necessarily one person is in control. So from this passage that talks about obeying the king, we can draw a principle for our lives today that basically says that respecting authority brings less trouble to your life. Now, that is very true in the school classroom. Those of you who are students, if you respect your teachers, it will bring much less trouble to your life. And those of you who are kids, respecting your parents will bring much less trouble to your life. But this is something that's hard for us to hard for us to get a grip on. And the reason is, is because there's something intrinsically American about questioning authority, isn't it? Um, we. We look at authority, we realize that authority is sinful 
And authority is human. And we think that we have the right to question it. Well, we might have the right to question it, but what we don't have the right, either in the Old Testament or the New Testament, is to disobey authority. The only time we can disobey authority is if the authority is asking us to do something that God has commanded in his word we should not do. That is the limit to how far we should go in respecting authority. So since a king's word is supreme, who can say to him... What are you doing? We don't have the right to question the authority. And that's a challenging principle for us to to live with. But if you just look generally in life, doesn't it usually go well with the people who try and obey the laws and follow the laws? And doesn't it go much harder for the people who don't respect the authority that God has placed in our lives? Look at the third principle. It comes from verses seven to eight. There are some things you will never know. And can never control. Since no one knows the future, who can tell someone, someone else, what is to come? As no one has power over the wind to contain it, so no one has power over the time of their death. You don't know the future. You don't know who will win the Super Bowl. You think you know who will win the Super Bowl. And I think, which is why I've been posting some things on my Philadelphia friends' Facebooks. um, But you can think you know the future, but you don't necessarily know the future. In fact, it's impossible to know the future. And so what the text does at this point is it uses two things to show you that there are some things that you will never know and can never control. There's two illustrations. The first one is the wind. Do you think that the people in Houston or in Puerto Rico last summer thought that they could control the wind? They couldn't. People are very smart. Human beings have technology that can do amazing things. We can send a person to the moon and maybe in years to come beyond, but yet we cannot control the wind. And so when it comes in, it devastates an area. You cannot control the wind. But not only that, you cannot control the time of your death. Unless, of course, you take life in your own hands. And unfortunately, some people do that. But what the text is saying is, is that you're basically not in control. Now, stop and think about that. A lot of you think that you're in control and you live your life. You try and be in control in every way possible. Now, stop and think for a moment. This is reality. This is a reorientation. You are not in control of anything. You could drop dead in five minutes. I don't want you to, but you could. You could walk out of this room. You could get in your car. You could get in an accident and you'd be gone just like that because you have no control over the time of your death. When your time is up and Ecclesiastes says there's a time to be born and a time to die. When it's your time to die, it's your time to die. And you don't know when it's going to happen. And so we live our lives in a, in a reality distortion field of thinking. I'm going to graduate from high school. I'm going to graduate from college. I'm going to graduate with a master's degree, with a PhD or whatever. I'm going to take the MCAT and survive. And then I'm going to be a medical person years down the road. That's what you think. And I'm not saying you shouldn't plan for that. But what I am saying this is reality is realizing right now, at this very moment, your life is not in your hands. It's in God's hands. And the same God that controls the wind and creates hurricanes that devastate regions for reasons that we don't understand why these things happen is the same God who holds your life in the palm of his hand. And you know what he's saying to each of you today? He's saying, trust me. 
You might think it's a fearful thing that you aren't in control. I tell you, brothers and sisters, it's a wonderful thing that you're not in control. It's a wonderful thing that our loving God, the God who created the universe, who designed human beings in his image, he's the one in control, not you, not me. Thank you, Jesus. That should lead to great peace in our lives. And notice as we go on to verse nine, there's another principle. Sometimes the wicked are honored while the righteous are forgotten. All this I saw as I applied my mind to everything done under the sun. There is a time when a man lords it over others to his own hurt. Then, too, I saw the wicked buried. Those who used to come and go from the holy place and receive praise in the city where they did this. This, too, is meaningless. What's the thing going on here in verse 10 about burial? This is the second time we've seen this in two weeks. Chapter six mentioned it. Chapter eight mentions it. Having a proper burial was a sign of of an appropriateness. Not having a proper burial was a sign that something was terribly wrong. And here we have the wicked ruler with an appropriate burial. So sometimes in this life, wicked people are honored while righteous people are often forgotten. That is reality. How many of you have been to Beijing? Raise your hands. Uh, many more than have read Steve Jobs's biography. That's good. Blessed are you who have gone to Beijing. Um, how many of you have gone to Tiananmen Square and gone into the mausoleum that houses the remains of Mao Zedong? Raise your hand. How many of you have seen dead Mao laying there? Okay. Many of you went to Beijing. Uh, raise your hands high if you've seen dead Mao. I want to see your hands. Um, how many of you have seen it? Okay. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Eight, nine, about 10 of you have seen Chairman Mao. Here was a man who many consider to be the savior of China. I ran into people last summer doing interviews in central China who thought he was a marvelous leader who did marvelous things for China. But so many people who were on the bad side of Mao Zedong's politics or Mao Zedong's policies um, didn't think that he was a great leader. They thought he was a wicked leader. But do you know what happened to him when he died? They honored him by saying, we're going to take your body. We're going to have it lie in state in Tiananmen Square and we're going to preserve it for all posterity. So if you go to Beijing and go to his mausoleum, then if, for a few hours each day, they raise his body from the, the cold place that it is under um, under the D-bond. I don't know how to say that. English. Under the floor. And then they they raise it up. <laughs> Sorry, I just came back from China, people. I'm trying to speak English, but... Um, it's hard. So they raise Mao Zedong's body up for about three to four hours a day. He's in this glass coffin. And then you can come and honor the ruler who had a proper burial. And I got news for you. It ain't really Mao Zedong. Because we knew the doctors from the third military medical, uh, medical facility in Xi'an, China, whose whole team worked on his body. And they told us that they injected too much formaldehyde into his face when he died to try and preserve him. And his face went like that. So they had to create a plastic figurine. So it's not really Mao's body. So they tried to um, <clears throat> they tried to honor him, but it's really not him. And you know what? Um, I, I, I heard that story in 1986. But then later on, um, many, many years later, Chairman Mao's private physician, Lee Jershui, wrote a book called The Private Life of Chairman Mao. And he tells the story in there as well. Tells it just like I I just uh, told you. So that's not really Mao. But the point is, is that sometimes wicked people are honored with a proper burial 
while people who are righteous, nobody knows their name. That man who stood in Tiananmen Square and looked a tank down the face and probably didn't live as many other students didn't live in 1989. That man who believed in principles that were righteous. What happened to him? Do you even know his name? No. The righteous are forgotten. Evil people are honored. That's life as it is. It's sad, but it's true. But notice there's another principle. Verse 11. When justice is delayed, evil is not restrained. When the sentence for a crime is not quickly carried out, people's hearts are filled with schemes to do wrong. So you've got somebody who's done wrong. They get caught. A sentence is given, but it's not carried out quickly. And when it's not carried out quickly and justice is delayed, then everybody else stands around and says, well, I can do that and get away with it. And that's life. That's reality. I saw that in a classroom. You know, in a classroom, you have to have rules. There are classroom rules. And every kid's supposed to follow the rules. But you know what happens when one kid gets away with breaking the rules? Then what does everybody else want to do? Everybody else wants to break the rules. When you don't actually write out the detention slip for the kid who's just talked three times and is out of order, and if you don't administer the discipline immediately, quickly, completely, fairly, and consistently across the classroom, then eventually you will have mayhem on your hands. So I share that with you from my own experience, that I learned that when justice is delayed, evil is not restrained. It's true in life. It's true in a classroom. It's true everywhere. Look at verses 12 and 13. Principle number six. Fear God even when others do not follow. Verses 12. Although a wicked person who commits a hundred crimes may live a long time, I know that it will go better with those who fear God, who are reverent before him. Yet because the wicked do not fear God, it will not go well with them and their days will not lengthen like a shadow. So the whole principle here is, is in spite of the world being messed up, in spite of how wicked seem to reign at different points, fear God in the midst of it. In other words, don't be a wicked person, even though it looks like sometimes the wicked live and have a long life. Fear the Lord, even when other people won't follow Some of you are students, you're about to go off to college. You're going to face incredible pressure, peer pressure, to do things that the Bible says you shouldn't do. One of those things from Ephesians 5.18 is get drunk. Do not get drunk with wine, for this is dissipation, but instead be filled with the Spirit. And when you're faced with a challenge to sin and to compromise your faith or to fear God, God is challenging you. Don't follow the other people when what the other people are following is their sinful urges or their sinful antics. Fear the Lord. Where is the fear of God in society today? It seems to be amazingly absent. Everything is about me, 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 me. I, I, I. What I want to do. And as long as you're getting to do what you want to do, everybody's supposedly fine. But that, according to the world as God sees it, as the writer to Ecclesiastes sees it, that's reality distortion. It's not about you, 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 and me, 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 me. It's about God, 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 the living God who's there, who we respect, who we honor, who we repent before his face because he's the living God. So fear God even when others do not follow. 
Here's the seventh principle from verse 14. Sometimes evil is rewarded and righteousness is repaid with evil. Now notice this. I think this is the most disturbing thing in the entire passage. There is something else meaningless that occurs on earth. The righteous who get what the wicked deserve and the wicked who get what the righteous deserve. This too, I say, is meaningless. So a lot of you are operating under what our son Martin calls the just world fallacy. Now pay attention. Um, The just world fallacy is basically thinking, if I do well, then good will come to me. If I do bad, then I'm going to be punished. Now, people who operate out of a just world fallacy, then when something bad happens in your life, you start thinking, well, what did I do to cause that? Well, I have news for you. God is way too gracious to deal with us as our sins deserve. And we don't live in a just world. And so sometimes we see injustice, but we do live in a gracious world as well, where sometimes God withholds his judgment of people to give them opportunity and time to repent. But this problem of sometimes um, finding out that evil is rewarded and righteousness is repaid with evil, that can really bug you. And it bugs some people to the point of saying, I ditch my faith because if I believe that God is God and he's in control and he allows the righteous people to be rewarded with evil and evil people to have everything go well with them. I can't worship a God like that. And, you know, if you feel like that today, you're not alone. The psalmist in Psalm 73, if you have your Bibles, turn to Psalm 73. I want to hit the highlights of what happens when you face the just world fallacy lived out in the life of the psalmist named Asaph in Psalm 73. (coughs) Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. For I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from common human burdens. They are plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts comes iniquity. Their evil imaginations have no limits. They scoff and speak with malice, with arrogance. They threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore, their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. They say, how would God know? Does the Most High know anything? This is what the wicked are like. Always free of care, they go on amassing wealth. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and have washed my hands in innocence. When you live under the just world fallacy, then when you face the evil that there is in life, that the wicked seem to prosper while the righteous often suffer, then it leads you at times to the conclusion of Asaph. In vain have I followed the Lord. It would be better for me to cheat. It would be better for me to do evil because then better things are going to happen to me. Well, that's not where we should be. And even though the writer to Ecclesiastes mentions this as a principle that we have to deal with, it doesn't mean that it's right. And you know what, brothers and sisters, where do we go to deal with the just world fallacy? We go directly to the cross of Jesus Christ. If you want to understand how to deal with it and you're struggling today living in a world of reality distortion, thinking that the just world fallacy should be true. Let me tell you, go no place farther than the cross of Jesus Christ. 
To see where the just world fallacy comes crashing down. And we see justice satisfied, but mercy magnified. When Christ, the Holy One, suffers unjustly for you and for me. That the one who knew no sin might become sin for us. That we might become the righteousness of God in him. Brothers and sisters, we don't live in a world of justice. We live in a world of mercy where Christ himself has borne the penalty of divine justice. And we praise God and we thank God for that fact. But notice in verse 15, back in Ecclesiastes 8, when you are perplexed by life's troubles, pleasure will help you to survive. You wonder sometimes, how am I going to get through this difficult life? Well, listen to this one, verse 15. So I commend the enjoyment of life because there is nothing better for a person under the sun than to eat and drink and be glad. Then joy will accompany them in their toil all the days of the life God has given them under the sun. When you are perplexed by life's troubles, pleasure will help you to survive. In other words, enjoy life. Enjoy this moment, even though things are crazy around you. Enjoy what you have. Some of you know what my favorite thing, what my favorite activity in the world is. Some of you are thinking it's preaching. No, it's not preaching. I love preaching. But that's not my favorite activity. Um, some, of, uh, some of you who think you know me, um, you're willing to stand up and say, no, don't say this. I'm afraid what you might say. Um, but uh, for those of you who know what my favorite activity is, and those of you who don't, you might be shocked to know what my favorite activity is. It's not snorkeling, although you might think it is snorkeling. It's very simple. It's inviting my friends out to eat. That's my favorite activity in the world. I absolutely love doing that and I love paying for it. Um, I don't love inviting you and then having you pay for it. That's what some pastors do. That's so tacky, man. I don't, I don't go there. Um, when I invite my friends out to eat, I like paying for it. And that gives me joy. That gives me gladness. And I live right in the middle of the principle of this passage that... Even though life can be perplexing and can be full of trouble, in the midst of it, you eat and drink, you have joy, you have fellowship, you look at the friends who you love and you say, thank you, Jesus. Brothers and sisters, don't take the blessings that you have in this life for granted, even though life is full of trouble. Thank God for the good things and enjoy them. And then notice the ninth principle. There are limits to the pursuit of wisdom. Look at verse 16 and beyond. When I applied my mind to know wisdom and to observe the labor that is done on earth, people getting no sleep day or night. Sounds like some of you in Crossbridge. People getting no sleep day or night. Why? Because you're too busy. Why? Because you have too much homework. Why? Because you're trying to do too much. Why? Because you're living right in the middle of this passage. Then I saw all that God has done. No one can comprehend what goes on under the sun. Despite all their efforts to search it out, no one can discover its meaning. Even if the wise claim they know, they cannot really comprehend it. You see what's happening in this, in this principle? You're comparing what you can know, even if you stay up day and night, with what God knows. And the kind of reality reorientation that God wants us to have right now is, is to realize, with all that you know, you know nothing. You know very little. And to compare what you know and what you've experienced against the God who knows everything, who's created everything, and who loves you. I challenge you today, reorient yourself around the truth of Scripture, the promises of God, and the Savior who died for you. Let's pray.
Lord, thank you for your word, for what it does for us and for how it leads us to consider how do we cope with an unjust world in light of a savior that you've given to love us to the fullest. So, Lord, bless us as we celebrate the supper. Bless us as we celebrate the remembrance of what you've done to give us the strength to cope and to live in this world. We pray in Jesus name. Amen.